Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the BuildCast. I'm really pleased today to have Greg Fisher, uh, the principal of Greg Fisher Architecture. And Greg is uh, an architect in Fort Collins who has just completed a passive house where he is now residing with his wife. And uh, we're here to learn more about that. But before we get to that point, I really w am interested, Greg, in how you're doing today, but also of how did you get into architecture in the first place yeah hi robbie thanks for having me um i have known i wanted to be an architect since i was in seventh grade um, oh really yeah i'm fortunate enough to have known what i wanted to do now to be honest with you i didn't really have a clue what an architect was when i was in seventh grade but i knew i wanted to be an architect and uh and then uh, just followed a nice steady path all the way to becoming licensed as quick as I possibly could and getting my own practice as quick as I possibly could. Great. Was there an experience in your early childhood that that was significant to this uh, discovery that architecture was your path? I think there was a combination of things. So I think, um, you know, it probably started in its infancy um, with some of the projects my dad liked to do. My, my dad was always in the agricultural industry. He grew up on a farm, um, so he was not in construction, but he liked to do some woodworking projects here and there, and he liked to do some home improvement projects. And so I tended to help him and, and you know got some inspiration from that. Then that led to um, summer jobs, working construction all the way through junior high, high school, college, uh, et cetera, and enjoying that and always, liking to see how things were put together, you know, how buildings were built. Um, and then I think there was another interesting inspirational moment. I was, um, I used to babysit um, for neighborhood families and kids. And one of the families I babysit, the father uh, of that family was um, designing a, a second home in the mountains somewhere and uh, had built, built a model of that cabin um, just the framing of the cabinet out of balsa wood and he had that sitting on a table when I babysit for this family and saw that and and that just really kind of lit something in me I just really loved that that model making and then I started building my own models of things houses buildings etc just for fun you know all the time growing up so yeah wow that's really neat um, so it sounds like um, at the beginning you're education in the building, what well, came through the building trades itself. Uh, what kind of jobs did you have? Yeah, no, that's true. Um, the first job was working in a lumber yard, you know, so stocking bins, learning products, doing some odd handyman jobs. You know, lumber, lumber yards were a lot different places then than they are now. Um, you know, driving a forklift, uh, just a variety of things, learning terms of construction. Uh, then I spent a couple of summers working for a home builder where 
mostly we did the concrete aspects so the foundations and the flat work and then there was things like you know grading lawns to get them ready for seating and then he also uh, had a mobile home business on the side or a modular home business so i would help set modular homes and then uh summer after that i worked for a framer which was really um, something that that i really liked the best was was framing homes and uh, ended up working for that guy a couple of summers and then uh worked a summer a couple of summers in college at a campground outside of west yellowstone montana building cabins um, just by myself um, which i really loved um, also did some odd you know garage kind of framing projects and also worked for a commercial contractor in uh, in college where i got exposed more to the estimating side of, you know they thought an architecture student should be in the office and so i got exposed to doing the estimating um there but um then they got slow in the field and sent me out in the field and found out i could swing a hammer okay and uh so did a lot a lot more work in that regard too so uh, yeah just always liked liked the trades yeah. yeah, that's uh, it's great to have that kind of well-rounded experience before diving into true uh, architecture school. Yeah, I think uh, you know, I I would have to say I you know my intuition for how things get built and don't fall down came more from from that trades experience more than it did from school. You know, a lot of other fantastic things came from school, but. But that side of that more grounded practical side came from from that experience, construction experience. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, I was looking at your kind of bio and it looks like you went off to school up in Montana. So I'm take it that you grew up here in Colorado. That's true. I, I primarily grew up in two rural communities, one in Wyoming and one in Colorado. So uh, elementary school was in Wyoming and then junior high and high school were in in the Eastern Plains of Colorado. So both very rural, um, small farming communities uh, related to my dad's uh, business. Great. And then, so you went to Montana State University and you joined the architecture program right away? I did, yeah. I went there, um, you know, I, I looked at several schools, uh, architecture schools. Um, so that was the primary focus. The secondary focus was I wanted to play basketball and I had a better chance of making the basketball team at Montana State than I did at some of the other schools I was looking at. So, uh, but um, basketball only lasted a couple of years and then architecture took over full time, but uh, never regretted the decision to go to school there um, because basketball was a piece of it by any means, so. Yeah. Montana State is such a popular school now for kids in Colorado. My, my two nephews are up there now and um, it seems like a lot of kids are looking there. Yeah, it, I think they, uh, I know, you know my son who's older now, but um, you know, he was looking at school or you know, had offers from school up there too. So they seem to be really attracted, particularly in Fort Collins, it seems like to uh, um, you know, kids here and you know, offer some pretty good incentives to, to go up there now. Um, at the time I was there, the, that wasn't happening, but, but, but yeah. And um, what, what did you think of the architecture program there? Um, you know, I, at the time I was in the school, I knew nothing different. I had no no way of making comparisons other than what I had sort of heard through the grapevine prior to going and you know, what helped me make my decision to go there. But um, at, at the time, um, you know, there was some places where it was listed as being in the top 10 accredited programs in the United States. 
I don't know how real those polls were, you know, and obviously there's lots of polls that could manipulate things, but, but I felt like it was a very good program. Um, it created a lot of truly practicing architects, but that doesn't mean it, it didn't also address the theoretical and the more artistic side of things. But, but most of the people that graduated did become practicing architects. I can think of a few that um, might have been more um, creative, more left brain, that, that architecture was a little too um, technical or restrictive for them and they went in the other direction. But they still, I think, very much used their education to learn how to solve problems and, and be creative. So, yeah. In your experience, do you find that a lot of the architects and architect students, I guess, um, had any of that practical background that you had? Yeah, I would say most don't, um, but um, some do. And, you know, and, I, and I think it's an interesting thing. Um, I also saw, this is kind of a tangent, but I saw some people that had way more construction experience before they went to college than I did. I could think of a couple examples of folk, fellows that um, with them, it actually was really inhibitive to them on the creative side. You know, they had had spent so much time figuring out how to put things together that they couldn't sort of let that go and just sort of be on, you know, sort of compartmentalize that and be creative. It just seemed to always hold them back. Um, so there's arguments both ways, I think, to be made. Um, but I do think that that those that, um, you know, do have that construction background, I think you can hit the ground running when you, you know, after you graduate and, you know, become a a professional, I think you can hit the ground running and serve a firm or serve the, the general public, you know, far faster than that construction background. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was building science on the agenda or in the mindset at all uh, when you were in school? Well, we didn't call it that, you know, so I, I was in the school uh, late 70s, early 80s. And um, what what I would say we now call building science was more called environmental controls at the time. So there was classes on HVAC systems, electrical systems, um, passive solar, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And um, the interesting thing was, was we always had, you know, probably every semester you had at least one environmental controls course. Well, not every semester, but most semesters, you had at least one of those courses amongst a handful of other courses. And then of course, every semester you're there from day one to the very end, you have design studio. And design studio is the predominant um, grabber of your time. And, um, and it's also the thing that is emphasized the most. So, um, you know, you could be a bad student in every class, but if you were a good designer and, and a good student in design studio, you would be a star in the program. But conversely, if you were a great student in every other regard and you weren't a great designer, you probably weren't considered a star. You would, you'd be considered you know, a smart person and a, and, and, you know, a good student and all that, but design is really what was emphasized. And I think the downside in my era of going to school was there was sort of a partition between those two things. So design was sort of one thing, environmental controls was another thing, and the two didn't commingle too much. Um, I think nowadays in school, you know, obviously I'm not in school anymore, but what I see on the periphery is those things have merged together more. 
and even design build, you know, aspects, you know, a lot of the programs have, I think, is merged together more. So those things aren't so distinct. And I think that's a great thing that, that they have merged together more. Yeah. How, um, through your practice over time, have you learned to merge those two things together for yourself, I guess? Yeah, I think it's been a, a long process. Um, you know, I think the process initially began with, you know, just trying to put together good construction drawings and good good construction details. And so, um, again, we probably weren't calling it building science. You know, at the time that started, it was more trying to make sure things function properly. They don't leak, you know, they, they drain properly, et cetera. But the level of sophistication has grown and grown. And, and my level of sophistication has grown and grown too. And so um, I would say where things really shifted for me was probably in the late 90s, around the turn of the millennium. And, um, you know, I think I had a, a shift, not only in, you know, relative to building science, but kind of a shift in me that occurred, you know, related to both spiritual things, political things, and environmental things. And so, I think at that point, there, like I say, there was a shift for me that just wanted me to, wanted, I wanted to seek out more knowledge, particularly in the green building aspects of things. And green building then led to a greater interest in building science. Um, I think green building started, in a nutshell, started more anecdotally, um, you know, and, and, be, and it was more about let's do less bad rather than let's do something truly good and something, you know, moving from sustainable to something that's regenerative. And, uh, and then I think my, like I say, my, my love for or interest in building science grew um, out of that too. So yeah, I can tell you more, but, but yeah, that's, that's the nutshell. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I, I think uh, similarly uh, my, one of my first jobs was with a production builder trying to figure out how to bring green materials into the production building environment. But those green materials were things like OSB and iJoyce and, and whatnot. Yes. And yeah. so, you know, moving that forward to an understanding of, you know, how they all to go together from a systematic and, and uh, building science uh, control layers perspective uh, is quite different and, and has involved, evolved, you know, tremendously since then. Yeah, and I can tell you my experience in the trades, um, green building was not present whatsoever. You know, it was more about how do you get things done um, productively and, and economically. Um, and it wasn't about green building whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. So it, it looks like uh, from, again, looking at your website and whatnot, that you moved uh, into this green building kind of arena through uh, programs like LEED and maybe Energy Star and, and some of those, were you designing houses for those, for people that were interested in those types of certifications? Yeah, I would, I would say my first um, real direction into green um, construction came through taking a course from the Institute for the Built Environment here at CSU through uh, Brian Dunbar. Bar. Um, and Brian was quite inspirational to me and to, to many others, I believe. Um, and that course, um, I was in the initial course and um, that he offered in that arena. And it was largely built around lead. And, um, you know, so the, 
program, you know, over the course of a what would be a semester, you know, kind of dove into the different, you know, um, aspects of LEAD and you kind of, you know, each each class we sort of dove deep into one of those and then kind of compiled things towards the end. And at the time I was doing far more commercial work than residential work. You know, I'm, I'm currently doing more residential work rather than more commercial work. But, but I would say my initial uh, projects were all really round lead and they were commercial oriented projects. Um, from lead, um, I went to uh, getting involved deeper with the Institute for the Built Environment and uh, Brian Dunbar and Josie Plout, who uh, is also very instrumental at, at the Institute for the Built Environment, we're kind of heading up a group of folks, um, myself included, local professionals that were interested in green building and developed ultimately a tool called LENSES. Um, LENSES was an acronym for Living Environments and Natural and Social Economic Systems. And more or less what we were trying to do, I don't know if they would agree with this, but, but I think the way it started out was we were trying to do the Colorado version of the Living Building Challenge. So um, if you're not familiar with Living Building Challenge, I imagine you are, but you know, it was sort of a movement that came out of the Pacific Northwest to take lead to a higher level and uh, do something that is truly regenerative rather than just sustainable, something that's truly good rather than less bad. And so we were looking to try to create sort of initially the Colorado version of that, but it evolved into something bigger. Uh, and so with, with that program, you know, things definitely took a, a much deeper level of, of seeking out knowledge. Uh, dabbled a little bit in Living Building Challenge. I have not done a Living Building Challenge certified building, so I'm definitely no expert there. Um, then also uh, got involved with a, a residential development, multifamily development here in Fort Collins, um, known as Revive on the north side of Fort Collins, that is a uh, zero energy uh, net, net zero energy, red, red energy um, development. And actually it's more than energy, net zero ready, it is net zero um, concluded, you know. So, um, and that's a DOE program I'm sure you're familiar with. I know you're, you're um, connected with Sam Rashkin and it's something that Sam has been passionate about. So that, that was an example of a project there. Um, and, you know, um, um, and then explored you know, just various other forms of green building, certified or not certified, and then kind of in parallel, passive house was being something that was becoming more and more interesting to me. And so that was sort of the next stage and more, more the current stage I'm at right now. After our recorded conversation, Greg reached out to me with the worry that we were picking on architecture schools a little too much. He wanted to ensure that all know the key role beauty and design play in sustainable architecture, and that beauty is something that architecture schools emphasize. Greg said, for a building to be sustainable, it must also be beautiful, as no one wants to keep an ugly building around. Buildings are meant to be generational, so they need to be both architecturally beautiful, efficient from the start, and sustainable over time. Coming from a rural background with limited artistic upbringing, architecture school was very important to me and grew my understanding of the importance of design. Well, thanks so much, Greg, for reaching out to me with that statement. I think it adds some more context to our conversation. And so let's get back to that conversation now.
And so that maybe takes us to uh, your passive house. Um, you, it looks like you decided to go with the European version rather than the uh, American US version. Uh, is there a reason behind that? Um, I'm still disappointed that we have two versions, to be honest with you. I feel like we're kind of all children of divorced parents and I wish our, our parents would reunite. It doesn't seem that that's maybe in the cards, but, um, but I would say the primary reason I went the PHI route versus the, the theist route is because my training came through EMU building system, my initial training and EMU building system um is using more of the phi version they try to be agnostic about it um as as i do as well uh, but really their training was based around that and so I, I elected to stay in that fashion because i was more familiar with them in in that aspect i would i need i need to actually learn more about theus i know enough about theus approach to be dangerous um, i like the fact that they're trying to reach a broader audience maybe than phi is um, trying to make things maybe a little bit more user friendly um, here in the United States to multiple climate zones and 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 our people here. Um, so I I have no no bias against FIAS, um that I know of at this point, but I know that there are many folks in in the PHI world that do have biases. But, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think we'll stay away from that that controversy and. Sure. Um, I'll ask you about uh, EMU Systems and your relationship with them, and how that, uh, how you got involved with them, and and how you enjoyed uh, working with them uh, through your project. Yeah, I initially met Enrico Bonolari um, probably about five years ago. He was speaking at the Sustainable Living Fair here in Fort Collins uh, on a panel talking about Passive House. I was aware of Passive House before that, but I hadn't really been exposed to any experts directly. Um, had seen some experts talk at various things like um, Leeds annual conference, et cetera, but, but not somebody so directly. So got to know him first through that and then um, really felt I wanted to go deeper. So signed up for their um, one of their early offerings for the Certified Passive House Tradesperson Program with the idea of uh, knowing that I was planning to build a, a home in not, the not too distant future from that time, and that maybe that might lead to going that way with my home. So I took that course, it was a, a, a four day course and a test all on site, you know, prior to COVID they could do that. And, uh, and also a hands-on course, found it to be extremely enjoyable, extremely um, educational, um, and Enrico does a fan, fabulous job of explaining things um, in a way that I think most folks can understand things clearly. Um, and um, so our, our relationship kind of just continued to, to bloom from there. Got to know Mariana, um, who's more the business partner between the two of them. And then ultimately decided to um, become a part of their pilot program, um, which is geared more towards uh, builders and trying to make passive house more user-friendly for builders. Um, but since I wanted to build my own house as well as design it, um, I sort of fit the, the the criteria of it being being for builders as well. So uh, did sign up with the pilot program and then um, you know spent massive amounts of time with 
Enrico, Enrico and, and Mariana as well, you know, working through all the details of the systems and trying to adapt them to the architecture that I wanted to express or, or vice versa, adapt my architecture to those systems, et cetera. But, but yeah, I think uh, they offer a fabulous educational system that they're working on that's ever evolving and getting better. And, uh, and, and Enrico's, um, you know, knowledge is just, just incredible. Um, I, I consider myself fairly knowledgeable about passive housing rebuilding, but, but Enrico just takes that to another level, particularly on the science side of things. So. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree for sure. It, it sounds like, the, you know, this, this real benefit of, uh, of their process is the pre, all the stuff that's happening pre-construction, uh, the analysis and the, the details and, and whatnot. How did that, uh, change your, process of uh, architecture and, and thinking about putting all those documents together? Yeah, it's kind of yes and no, you know, so, you know, prior to doing my own project, which, you know, I would have been starting the design, I guess, about three or four years ago now, um, you know, I was still very much interested in trying to design to high performance, but it was a different thing, you know, it was more about getting the proper orientation and, and proper assemblies and and thinking about HVAC systems and stuff, but on a more general level, and we, you know, a lot of different energy modeling tools, but less of these tools in my own hands. And so with Passive House, um, initially, most of the modeling was done by Enrico, but as the project evolved, uh, he helped me learn to use Design PH, which is a uh, more user-friendly software version where you, for, you know, for architects and builders and so forth to, actually do some preliminary energy modeling of your design. So learn how to use that and then ultimately handed off the data from that to Enrico to plug into PHPP, Passive House Planning Package, which is what you ultimately use to prove out your, your modeling for Passive House. So um, going back to did it change my process? Um, I wouldn't say it changed it, but it deepened it. You know, so, um, you know, we'd be used to doing a conceptual design of a building and then handing it off to an energy modeler to check how things were and then, you know, wait several months, you know, or weeks at least for that to come back to you. And then you evolve your design further and maybe you go back and forth on that a little bit. But Design PH allowed me to, to have that, my hands on that aspect and make those decisions more quickly and more directly. Um, and then again, just got much deeper with, with Enrico's involvement. And then um, had to also get much deeper into the, HVAC and ventilation systems than I ever personally had. You know, typically I would be working with a mechanical and electrical engineer to to handle those on a on a, on a commercial building side of thing. You know, most residential homes, as I'm sure you were, don't typically have a mechanical electrical engineer involved, and so those tend to be things that are done by the trades on a design build fashion. Or in the case of my own house, it was kind of a, a teamwork of me and and those professionals. And so I would also say that. A nice side benefit of Passive House is it deepened my appreciation for those aspects and my interest in those aspects. Um, um, definitely no expert by any means um, compared to others, but but it definitely deepened those things. So. Yeah. Did your approach to um, the actual design or form of the house change because what we see most often with passive houses that they're relatively simple straightforward boxes to you know just yeah to be blunt 
I, I had the pleasure of touring your uh, house under construction, and I think it, it seemed uh, to be much more aesthetically pleasing than some of the other houses that you've seen. So it's, I think you were able to maybe figure out how to uh, do both. Yeah, thank you um, for saying that. Um, it it definitely my focus was to try to do passive house that was also, as you put it, aesthetically pleasing. You know, I wanted to create a piece of a nice piece of architecture as well as a high performing building. You know, I, I really love any form of art, music, literature, whatever that has it sort of speaks on more than one level. You know, that maybe there's this artistic thing that's out there that you could appreciate for itself, but it also has some depth of some other intermediate that takes it further. Um, and I think that it was going back to my shift in architecture in the around the millennium was to try to add more depth to what I was doing, you know, not just artistic depth, but other forms of depth. Um, so with, with our house, um, you know, I think again in prior projects you know i would always think about proper orientation of the building and try to elongate the east-west axis of the building so you're maximizing your southern exposure minimizing your east and west exposures you know because those are harder to control from the sun etc so those things were part of my practice prior to passive house i think passive house the the next added thing that it brought was trying to think of a house in more com or a building in more compact form what it really encourages is trying to be compact. So the most perfect form of passive house would be a sphere because you get the most enclosed volume for, to the least amount of surface area. But as we know, you know, the sphere is not practical to build. So a box, you know, becomes the next best thing. And that's why many passive houses uh, are box-like, you know, and, and there's nothing, I'm not trying to demean that or discourage that, but that that is how you become more efficient more easily. Um, with our house, we are longer east to west, and we are kind of um, three somewhat simple forms kind of connected by flat roofs between them, three gable forms connected by flat roofs. So there's a little bit more complexity for sure. And that was a big part of when I was working with Design PH and that early modeling, trying to test those boundaries of, you know, how, how can I make this form and yet still achieve the, you know, the passive house certification and, and more importantly, the passive house energy goals, you know, the amount of, of heating load and cooling load that, that your, your, your building requires per year. Yeah. And that windows, of course, is a huge part of that too. And shading of those windows is a huge part of that as well. And so um, it's... Did you choose uh, European windows or uh, did you go with an American window? Yes, <laughs> it's both. Um, so the, the windows I chose were built by Advantage Architectural Woodwork in Colby, Kansas. Um, so they're American made. However, they're known as SmartWin, uh, and that's a European, a German-based system. So um, the owner of Architectural Advantage Woodwork, Bob Holloway, um, there in Colby, is a master woodworker, and he spent time in Germany learning how to build um, per the SmartWin systems and became, I guess you'd call it a certified smart wind um, manufacturer. So he gets a lot of his parts and pieces, as I understand it, still from Europe, but he is manufacturing everything um, in Kansas. So the only 
you know, we have some components that came from Europe, like our window sills. Um, the glass ended up coming from Europe. Um, I think both Bob and I very much look forward to the day when we can get good European quality glazing in America um, and not pay more for it than it costs to have it shipped over here on a container and use all that carbon cost. Uh, but yeah. we did get European glass, so uh, yeah. So, what's the name of his company again? Arch for our no. audience, Advantage Architectural Woodwork. Right. Um, the other part of the architecture I, that seems to be really important in this process of designing the house beyond. The, the, the bigger form are the actual construction details. Um, did you uh, do, do a lot more with those details than you normally do, or did you borrow them from EMU systems, or how did you, how did you develop that, and where are you going with, the, with those um, details as you're moving forward after your house? Yeah, so... Um... The assemblies for my house, you know, the walls, the floors, the roofs, etc., were part of the EMU systems package. So if you're not aware of it already, Enrico has spent a massive amount of R&D time analyzing different assemblies relative to different climate zones and trying to come up with what he feels are the, you know, the most builder friendly and um, reasonably priced for particular climate zones and then his program is to get those pushed out to more and more builders and get more and more feedback you know and continue to to develop and improve those assemblies so the base assemblies came from all of that R&D work that that Enrico had done some of the details also came from from Enrico but then we needed to modify them to work with the architecture that I had going here, you know, so a lot of new, you know, hit sort of the basic details. So if you were building the box that you you uh, astutely pointed out before that a typical passive house might build, he might already have an assembly kit for almost everything you need for that that box. But I had some different conditions going on where, you know, um, how how the windows were trimmed out at the exterior, how the the sliding glass doors met the slab on grade concrete floor as opposed to meeting a um, wood frame floor over a crawl space kind of condition. Um, so those details then became a collaboration between Enrico and I to achieve both the architectural and the passive house um, criteria. And there was a lot of time spent on that, both in design and, and in construction. Um, and I think most of them were pretty successful. There's a few, I think, that, that we can improve upon for sure. So. Um, it seems like a lot of architecture or architects um, don't spend enough time on those types of details. Did, did it, was this a relatively new to you, or do you think that it just really took what you were doing already and moved it forward? Uh, the latter. Um, I, it, it, I, I do believe details are a big part of executing good design, be it for artistic reasons or for just practical reasons. So I've, I've always enjoyed trying to add a fair amount of detail to my drawings. Um, but the passive house aspect took it to another level, both in terms of 
thinking through like how air barriers and vapor control layers, I should say air control layers, how those maintain continuity through different conditions, you know, so there's, a, it just sort of added another level of detail to my thinking. Um, and then as well as documenting it. So, you know, if you are truly seeking passive house certification, as opposed to, you know, just building to passive house kind of standards, you need to document how these things are put together. You know, that's part of your submittal to um, PHI or FIAS, you know, to, to prove that your, your, your assemblies work, you know, and then, and then a lot of those details end up being minor thermal bridges. You know, you're trying to avoid any thermal bridges, but it's impossible to build a building without thermal bridges. Um, and so you still, you have to even model those thermal bridges as to how they affect the important, the, the performance of the home. So all of those things have to be proved out and, and documented um, as well as photographed in the field as part of the documentation process as well. So, yeah. So I just say it, it took it to a much deeper level. And I think, you know, architecture, from my view, and probably construction as well, is an old man's profession. You know, you just learn more and more things as time goes on. And, you know, I know way more now than I did when I first started. Uh, but I would also say that young people know more now than I did when I first started, too, because the science has gotten so much better, too. But, but yeah, I think there's just multiple layers that just keep deepening. Yeah, it seems like uh, part of the process of Passive House is to not leave anything up to the contractor who's actually building it in terms of their interpretation of how to build it. It, it all needs to be laid out really clearly for them. And it, I think in most uh, architects, the projects, you know, they'll say something like do as industry norm or, you know, do per code, or they'll, they'll have these hanging sentences in their documents that just leaves it up to interpret too much interpretation. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I, I hope though, as time goes on, you know, what we sort of view as standard construction becomes a higher and higher level to the point where maybe, you know, some of that can, can be legitimate, you know, that we are, you know, that, that we've got the trades trained, we've got the architects trained and everybody, the way we do things, whether it's passive house or just other forms of high performance building that we are thinking more about those things and they become more intuitive and natural to us and less foreign, you know, just like how, for the most part, most people don't build things that fall down. You know, we all have sort of an inherent sense to, to do things in a way that they don't fall down, but not always, but, but, but yeah. mostly. Yeah. But um, yeah. And the codes keep, you know, um, advancing um, more and more over time. You know, I hope, you know, my hope is that things like Living Building Challenge and Passive House and others are, you know, sort of pulling up from the top and, you know, the code is pushing up from the bottom and, and hopefully they, they kind of merge together more as time goes on. So. Yeah. What do you feel about uh, taking what you've learned uh, in its entirety, I guess, uh, from Passive House and this, this experience of building your Passive House and designing it uh, into your future projects? Uh, is it practical to do that I, if I, it's not actually a passive house? Yeah, I can, I'm a mixed thing there. So I have a I have a couple of projects that are seeking passive house certification that have sort of come out of my own project, and you know the the value that I can bring um, to those projects is you know not only the design aspect, but having built one and being more sympathetic 
to you know the people that have their hands on things and trying to help them move through that that learning process. I also have several other people reaching out to me that are very interested in passive house, but but aren't quite quite willing to um, take it all the way to certification, um, or maybe not even take it all the way to you know just passive house standard, but you know um, want to do a you know far better than code level of of project, and so. Um, I would say it's harder in the non-certified projects to determine where is that line that you take it to. You know, it's it's if you if you aren't doing some form of modeling and analysis to know you're achieving a standard, you know, it's it's hard to say you know exactly what you've done, and that's that's part of my learning process too to see figure out where those potential happy mediums are. But I believe. You know the science of passive house and the modeling is one of the most valuable aspects of it to make sure that you're 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 taking things in a, in a right fashion. I do have a couple of projects where we are not seeking passive house certification, but we have done some design pH modeling and and then even in other cases had Enrico do a little bit further analysis and make some good recommendations. You know, for example, I've got a project in Triggs, Idaho, in a climate zone seven. And um, we're building a double wall assembly, a pretty pretty darn robust assembly. Um, but the house has poor orientation because um, it's got really great views of the Tetons that are on the east side of the house. So it's got a lot of glass facing east and not a lot of glass facing south, et cetera, just for a nutshell example. But um, a good, very good wall assembly, far above the codes there. Um, but we had Enrico take a look at it and, and run some analysis. And you know, he pretty much convinced me and more importantly, the owner slash builder to upgrade their window package um, because it was just a very much proved out to be a weak link, not only in the performance, but also in potential bold mitigation, et cetera, condensation issues. And so um, you know, that proved immensely valuable to, to have that, that upgrade, I think, or will prove to be. Um, it didn't save any money in this case because um, there was a bit of consulting time costs and there, of course, was a more expensive window package, but hopefully that will lead to far greater comfort in that home um, and also lead to uh, much greater energy savings um, as well. So, Yeah. Um, there's some concern, I guess, in the building community that passive house is, is going overboard, uh, that it's not cost effective, that you've, you've, you've passed that threshold of cost effectiveness uh, with the insulation levels and tightness levels and, and whatnot. Uh, do you think that's true or do you have any thoughts on that? I completely understand that argument and that perspective. Um, and I think sometimes it comes down to just a value judgment. You know, where, where do you want to spend your money? You know, do you want to spend your money in a, you know, $70,000 imported European range, you know, for your kitchen? You know, is that, you know, maybe, you know, if you're uh, cooking is super important to you, um, maybe that makes sense. Um, you know, for example, in the case of our house, our, our appliance package was not elaborate. Um, it was, you know, much more affordable. Uh, and so it's a, it comes to be, I think, sometimes a case of trade-offs of where you spend that that money. Uh, there's certainly a few details. I'm not going to name any specifics right now, but that might have created more effort and more cost 
on a percentage basis than the value that they've returned. You know, so I think there is some places like that. But to me, it's more about finding those places and trying to figure out a way to do that differently, that it doesn't have that imbalance more than it is abandoning the system entirely. Um, but I, I, I do think, um, you know, my house, for example, is built at what I would consider um, a cost per square foot that would be very competitive in the market right now relative to the other houses I'm working on. However, what it doesn't have in the cost, to be fair, is I did not pay a general contractor. I did not pay a framing contractor. I did not pay a, someone to do all the air sealing details because I self-performed those with the help of another fellow. Uh, so those costs aren't included, but I still think even if I were to pay those costs, um, I don't think I'm outrageous in the marketplace relative to what we did. And we've got a lot more going on than it you know, maybe a typical house would because of the architectural aspects here yeah. as well. I intend to do more analysis of those costs, but I think I think where there's a will, there's a way. Um, you know, and you may have to give up some other aspects, um, but but I think where there's a will, there's a way. So like the, you know, may, maybe it's not passive house, but I have two projects. The revive project I mentioned a minute ago, which was net zero energy, is a market rate very popular project is selling out at market rate and it's net zero energy literally as a community um, also done a project for the habitat for humanity where we didn't achieve any sort of certifications but we did some energy modeling um, using some um, design incentives from the city of fort collins to help with some of that modeling cost and i think we vastly improved those building envelopes without doing anything too radical to the construction approach too so yeah I mean, the Revive project, if I remember correctly, is a pretty standard two by six wall with a blown fiberglass, I think. Yeah, it, it it's standard other than it has staggered studs. So it's a it's a two by four stud staggered on a two by six plate. So nothing terribly radical. Most most of the work there comes down to um, air sealing. You know, and, and you know, we, there was a lot of growing pains through that process from the start to the over the probably 10 years that it took to build out that project. A lot of growing pains of figuring out the air sealing aspects. Uh, we also had a geothermal system. All the wells were built for those homes from the prior developer. We sort of inherited that. That helped quite a bit as well. But 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 other than that, nothing too radical. So. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the that's kind of that question of cost effectiveness is when you go beyond uh you know an r30 wall or something like that does it does it make sense uh to to even go that far uh so i think that's where where we're starting to see people say we we'd like to do passive house and not certify it because we we're going only going to take it to the level of where it makes common sense versus passive house modeled sense right right Maybe. No, I understand that, but I, I do think that modeling piece is an important piece, even if you don't seek certification. Yeah. But but yeah, yeah. just to, yeah. because windows windows are a huge factor in that, and oh, so yeah. if you're not looking at how the you know what's the ratio of windows to walls on the different orientations and how are they shaded and so forth, you don't know. You know you can you can take an assembly that's good for climate zone five with lots of windows maybe and um, and 
or maybe not very many windows or take it from lots of windows in five and move it to a climate zone six that doesn't have as many windows and maybe that assembly still works um you know so it's there's a lot of trade-offs that have to be analyzed that, that must be one of the harder things for an architect is to limit the number of windows yeah uh, i mean Most it's definitely difficult for clients yeah, most definitely. Um, that is the hardest thing for me personally. Um, you know, I, I love modern, ar modern architecture. I love lots of glass, both from an outside and an inside perspective. But, you know, I think to be responsible, you have to manage how much glass you have. You know, and my house probably has more glass than most passive houses do as well, I would guess. But, but definitely think about how much glass is on the north versus the south, et cetera. So, yeah. So let's uh, let's pivot a little bit and talk uh, specifically about some of the assemblies um, in your in your house. Um, mm -hmm. Which which one which assembly do you think is the most unique that that you did that you have never done before? Um, well, I, I guess I mean I, I think of a few details that are probably more unique, but in terms of the assemblies, the walls. Um, are unique in that they're, in a sense, triple walls. So there's a an outer two by six wall, an inner two by four wall, and um, then the air and vapor control air is on the inside face of the inner two by four wall, and then that cavity is full of blown insulation. And then we have just a a WRB water re weather resistant barrier on the outside, and and then a rain screen, etc. But then inboard of that air and vapor control layer is another wall that's um, built of two by threes and that's our service cavity um, so all our wiring and our plumbing is run in the service cavity such that the majority of it does not penetrate that that air and vapor control layer is the the design there so uh, you know fair amount of framing involved in you know having triple walls um, um, so that that was certainly unique it was also very unique for me um, this was the first project i've ever done the air control layer completely on the inside you know i think every project i've done before were uh, and the better projects were being very fussy about that air control layer and weather control layer on the outside and thinking about how that passes through all the various assemblies and corners and roof conditions and so forth and i i found it kind of hard to um transition to putting it all on the inside. It made perfect sense, and I could elaborate on that, but it made perfect sense for it to be on the inside for this project. But then it was hard on the outside to figure out how far do you take it when it's not really the air control layer. And I still found a lot of the practices I was using when I was thinking of it as air control, I still ended up incorporating. They're probably still better practices, but they weren't necessarily critical since that air control layer was on the inside. Yeah. I guess I like to think of it as where your primary air control layer is, and then in essence you have a secondary control layer, which in your case is the outside. So it's it's never yeah. harmful to to you know pay it's, that extra attention to that layer as well. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how about your your foundation? It's on a slab on grade. Um, you put insulation underneath as well as at the slab edge. Yeah, we have eight inches of EPS below the slab, uh, which I might, by the way, mention that we were we were trying to avoid the use of foam products um, for the insulation in the house. 
and we're able to achieve that everywhere except for subgrade. Um, you know, the alternatives for going subgrade were just far more costly than than the foam. Um, but yeah, we have eight inches of EPS below the slab, which it consists of two layers of four inch, and the joints are staggered. And I think that's something that I would like to explore further in future projects as to, you know, do you really truly need eight inches of, of EPS down there? A little bit more modeling on that would be interesting. And then, as you mentioned, there is insulation on the exterior of the foundation, um, two inches of EPS, as well as um, where the slab on the inside meets the wall, there's two inches of EPS that separates the slab from touching the foundation that goes down and connects with that that insulation below the slab. Yeah. And how did you protect and finish the uh, exposed slab edge insulation? Um, you're talking about the top of it on the inside? Oh, it's not, it's not, your slab edge insulation isn't on the outside? We have both. So on, so on the outside, it's um, protected with um, pre-finished metal flashing. We did a nice flashing detail that caps the top of that, and then our rain screen and so forth transitions down to the top of that. Uh, first, I thought you were asking about the inside, because oftentimes that can be challenging, too. You've got that two inches of foam that's in a finished floor and your wall is outside of that. But with our fatter walls, it ended up covering all that. And we're um, also able to take the vapor control layer underneath the slab and wrap that up and make it continuous with the, um, you know, actually it's a true vapor barrier below the slab. And then it was just a vapor control, intelligent vapor control layer above the slab, but the two were taped together and were continuous. Great, great. And uh, what mechanicals did you end up with? Yeah, so we have uh, in-floor radiant heating and cooling. Um, that The source for that is a uh, two geothermal wells and then uh, are, are fed into a, a heat pump, a two-ton, three-ton heat pump. And then, of course, we have a, an ERV system. Um, since we are built so tight, you know, you know, with Passive House, we need to ventilate properly. And so we have a an ERV system uh, within the house. So. And uh, geothermal system is doing your hot water as well for the domestic hot it is, water? It is not. It's do, the, the domestic side is electric based. And then uh, we also have a solar array and a solar battery um, to achieve net zero source energy. Uh, so uh, we don't have any fossil fuels on site with the exception of a propane tank that we have to run our fireplace, which is more for ambiance, and our barbecue grill. But other than that, we're, we're not sourced from, from fossil fuels. Yeah. Great. And uh, you've been formally certified? We have, yeah. Um, received the plaque, uh, I think, a couple months ago. So, Terrific. Do you have a, an idea of, um, going back to cost, uh, a, a potential percentage above normal construction that you might anticipate or think about? Yeah, I'm I'm planning to spend more time on that to make it more precise. I mentioned those variables before that, you know, I didn't pay for a general contractor and framer and so forth. So I want to go back and apply, you know, maybe some of those costs relative to other projects to get more more dialed in on this. But you know, many people in the passive house world say it's about a five to ten percent increase over conventional. And and this is speaking more in the 
single family world. You know, if you start looking at the multifamily and commercial scale, you know, the, the more scale you have, the less that cost differential occurs. It's easier to it's easier to achieve passive house on on larger projects and multifamily projects because of that same sort of form factor thing I talked about earlier. You can close more volume with less surface area. But the five to percent, five to ten percent factor seems to be talked about quite a bit. And I would generally say I probably fall in that that realm of things, probably more closer to the 10% than the 5%, but I need to do further analysis of that. Also largely depends on what you're comparing it to. You know, what is your base, you know, what is your base assemblies? You know, if you're talking code minimum or you're talking, you know, something um, more than that. You know, most of the projects I'm involved with these days aren't code minimum, so it's a higher base to start with too. But but yeah. Definitely spent more on windows, definitely spent more on insulation, definitely spent more on um, air and vapor control and taping um, products um, could have saved more on the HVAC side. Um, that's usually where your biggest savings are. In our case, we opted for this in-floor radiant heating and cooling system powered by geothermal. Um, we could have done um, air source heat pump, saved a little bit, but with the tax incentives for a ground source heat pump, it didn't. the differential wasn't great enough to warrant it to me. Could have saved a lot more if we'd have went to mini splits, um, you know. And I, I definitely would encourage most of my clients that are thinking passive house to be looking at mini, mini splits or air source heat pumps, particularly if the federal tax credits go away. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, we've said for so long that going to Energy Star or the DOE Zero Energy Ready Home program is a five to five to ten percent. Uh, increase. So my my theory is that Energy Star, there's no, should be no increase in cost to go there. The DOE program is probably closer to that 5% and Passive House would be that, you know, that 10% uh, potentially. So it's all, all economical really at this point. Yeah. And I, I think it's only going to continue to get better. Um, you know, all new technology costs more, of course, at the beginning. And as more trades people adopted and the more products are available in the U.S. versus Europe, you know, all these things are going to improve. And it, it already has, you know, it might, yeah. building my, my home is far easier than some of the earlier trail, trailblazers. So. Great. Well, one last uh, thing I was thinking about is uh, what from your history and the path that you've taken do you think maybe is most influenced in most influenced you and what you're doing today and helping to move our industry forward? Well, I, I don't know that I can dial it into any one thing. I've read a lot of books. I've heard a lot of inspirational people talk. Um, and not only, you know, in the construction world, but in the environmental world that I think, you know, just continue to, to, to lead me to, to wanting to take things further. Um, you know, I think, when you start thinking about how long buildings are going to be around and how much of a percentage of our overall energy consumption is from our buildings, um, you know, I think you have to think more than about what is just the initial cost of a building today. You know, I think you have to think about how what's the impact of this building on multiple generations from now, as opposed to, you know, just that initial cost. And that's where I, you know, sort of had that shift, you know, 20 years ago or more to thinking about trying to do things more responsibly. Um, 
and many of my clients feel the same way and they're easier to bring along on the journey and others maybe less so um but my hope is to always advance maybe advance is not the right word but try to bring whatever project to the place that it can can best um, try to achieve those goals you know there's a lot of talk about um you know doing things incrementally is not adequate and i probably tend to agree with that for the most part but um the human side of me um, still finds many clients that I like and are good people and I want to help them and but yet they may not want to go um, to more of a sea change kind of approach you know and so um, the human nature side of me still wants to help good people do good projects um, even when they may not take it as far from an environmental standpoint or sustainability or a comfort standpoint as I, I'd like to take it to but but hopefully I'm still able to take them um, a little further and, and maybe help uh, expose them to more uh, options and um, you know maybe they don't take this project to that level but maybe the next one they do so well, very very well said I really appreciate your time today Greg it was a pleasure speaking with you uh, thanks Thank so much you. likewise thank you for listening to this episode of buildcast Brought to you by Build Tank Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the Buildcast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you, for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of Buildcast. You can listen to Buildcast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast, which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.